The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continuing on this Communion Sunday with studies considering the topic of prayer, not looking at it in any one book of the Bible, but various places where prayer is addressed. Today we come to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11. I have less time than normal on a Communion Sunday, but I hope I can convey some of the wonderful things that this passage of teaching from Jesus himself contains about the subject of prayer. Luke 11, I'm reading, beginning at verse 1, but it's really 5 through 13 that I'm going to take up with you. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within the house, Do not bother me. The door is shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, although he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And so I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For whoever asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks will find it opened. And what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is God's own holy word. Years ago, in weeks leading up to Christmas, and I'm going back quite a few years because my wife and I have had an empty nest now for going on 20 years, but I do remember talking with our children when they were still living under our roof about Christmas and Christmas gifts, and uh, we would encourage them to express themselves and, and give us some idea, perhaps, what they might like as Christmas gifts. Now, we were always careful to say, uh, we don't intend to buy you everything exactly that you might designate that you need. I can remember doing these when I was a kid out of the Sears 
and Roebuck wish book, and I would say, Mom, page 79, chemistry set number two, costs $34. You know, I, I made sure she knew which, uh, which item she was supposed to do. Well, we said to our kids, look, we'd like a little guidance from you. You're not going to get every single thing you ask for, but give us some ideas. Well, one year I particularly remember a uh, piece of notebook paper stuck to our door with crayon, seven-year-old writing on it. And I won't say who it was, uh, but this son's about to get married at age 39. <laughs> no names included. Uh, and I was so amused and remembered it because he put stars all around the top item and then wrote at, at the bottom with an arrow pointing up it said, Main Thing. And Main was spelled M-A-N-E. We knew what the main thing was for sure with that Christmas list. I miss those times and a father's opportunity to respond to the requests of his children. Well, we've spent several weeks tracing the substance of Christian prayer. It's a big subject. There's so many directions we could go in. But I have stayed with something that you could say is non-biblical, but it references a lot of Scripture. The acrostic, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And we come to the fourth of those today. Supplication isn't even a word we use very often, but it works in the word act. So we say that instead of petition, which would probably be our more understood word. Requests that we make. And some of you are saying, good, he's been talking about adoration and confession and thanksgiving. But finally, he's going to talk about my asking God for the things I want and the things I need. Good, this is what I need to hear. Well, certainly... I have said to you that we can spend entire satisfactory times in prayer when we're doing nothing but adoring God or nothing but confessing sin or nothing but giving thanks. We don't say every prayer has to contain 25% of each of those items. But isn't it true that most of our prayers contain about 85% of this last item, supplication? Certainly it's legitimate. And if you had noticed, ever think about the Lord's Prayer, which we say so often, it's, it's about 75% petitions, begins with an opening recognition of God's holiness and the coming of His kingdom, but then from the word give us each day, it's all petition. Petition is certainly legitimate, but the problem is that it dominates our prayers. It's the elephant in the room most of the time. And many people never do anything else but rush into the presence of God and pour out their petitions. And one of the things they never seem to think about is that even what you ask about or ask God for may need revising. You may need to learn something from God and learn how to ask for something a little bit different than the way it comes out of your mouth the first time you think about it. Because perhaps the will of God in that matter is quite a different thing than you think it is. Now, there are times when we think, how could it possibly not? You know, God wants me to have a job, so I certainly can say, God, give me a job. He certainly wants perhaps my sister to be saved, so I can say, please save my sister's soul. How could that be wrong? Well, it's not wrong, but we don't know how God might go about doing something like that or how he might time it 
in his providence. And many times we've got it all figured out. It's a good thing. It has to happen. Why doesn't it happen right now? It hasn't, so God doesn't answer prayer. Well, I simply don't believe in unanswered prayer. I'll say more about that at a later occasion, but God answers the prayer of his believing people. It's just that we don't always stay around long enough to connect his answers to the things that we may have early on asked for that were misdirected or clouded or shadowed even by our sin or our misunderstandings. As we look at this passage, Luke 11, 5 to 13, it's an interesting passage that has what we would call a mini-parable followed by a thematic statement in verse 9 and then another short parable about the gifts God gives before it ends. I try to give you some meaning here with this, these different elements, but 9 and 10 are really the, the theme or the conclusive statement of the whole thing where we read these words, and it's from Jesus himself. Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. A very assertive, clear statement. And yet, from here and from many other places, we issue a denial that we are being taught here that God is a vending machine. Now, you say, of course God isn't a vending machine. Well, if you know that, why do you treat him like one? As if you would come to him and put six quarters, or I don't even know how many quarters you have to put in a machine to get a can of soda these days, maybe more like 12 some places. But uh, you drop your right quarters in and push the right button and clang, clang, and something comes down the chute. That's the way a lot of people treat God and treat prayer. I want to put three quick points before you today. Our text, I think, first of all, shows the boldness and privilege of God's family. Secondly, it shows the excellence of God's gifts. And thirdly, it shows what I call the how much more principle of Scripture. The boldness and privilege of God's family is here in verses 5 through 8, illustrated through this man who lived somewhere in Palestine who was caught in a situation where probably his grocery shopping got done on Wednesday. That was his market day. And it was Tuesday night. Now, you need to understand that in the culture of the New Testament, there were no holiday inns. I'm sure you know that. Uh, There were no restaurants. And people depended on friends and sometimes on outright strangers for a place to stay or a meal. And if you know also the fact that it is very hot in that climate to travel in midday, people traveled in the late afternoon and on into the evening. They did not have their iPhones to, you know, send a text to Uncle Clem in the next town and say, expect me at 8 o'clock. They just showed up and knocked at the door and said, Uncle Clem, here I am. I'm headed for Jerusalem. I need a place to stay tonight, and I haven't eaten today. Now, in our culture, in American culture, we would consider it to be very rude, even perhaps for a close relative, a first cousin or a brother, to show up like that and expect hospitality in our home, a bed to sleep in, and a meal uh, with no notice. We, maybe we'd be bold enough to say to them, well, you're downright rude. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you write a letter or something? Let me know you were coming. 
Listen, this is what was done in this culture, and it was also a culture that prized your reputation for hospitality. Your reputation would either be in the gutter or in the treetops based on how you, visit, how you helped a visiting uh, person that sought your roof to stay in. So here's this man. He's stuck without provisions. Who does he turn to? Well, of course, the text tells us he turns to his next-door neighbor. And the imaginary response is given here. The man in his one- or two-room little house, the houses weren't very big in those times, hey, I can't get up. I've got to step on three sleeping children in order to get to the front door. I can't help you. We're all in bed. Jesus says, no, you don't expect that. You expect him to get up and come and help because partly he knows that he could be in that situation next asking the aid from you, and he would need it and expect a good response. So he will get up. Jesus was sure about it. He will get up. He will meet the need, even though he might possibly resent it in some way or consider it too much to ask. Now, the absolutely wrong way to understand this Scripture is to think that here's Jesus telling you that God can hardly be bothered by you. But he responds to you because you're impudent and rude and persistent. No, this is not a parable of comparison. It's a parable of contrast. If even a sinful neighbor who just is sleepy and doesn't want to be bothered can help you in your need, think what the great God who is your heavenly Father, who is gracious and wise and loving, Think how different from that he will be. He will extend himself in every possible way and reach out to you and be glad to respond. He'll be the opposite of that lazy neighbor is what Jesus is saying. So he's pointing here to our privileged relationship that we have as the children of God. And we have an understanding of what it means to be God's adopted child in Christ. We've come under the blood of the cross, the mercy of God. We're new creations in Jesus Christ. We can be bold because of a privileged relationship to a heavenly Father. We can't be too bold with Him. We're not going to come to God and find a sign hanging out on heaven's gate. Sorry, we're occupied tonight. Come back on Tuesday. It's not going to happen. That's not our God. This reluctant householder uh, shows us that the key is not God is like this, But how much greater is God to respond to his children for whom he is preordained and predisposed to want to consider and meet their best needs? There's a boldness of privilege in being in the family of God. Well, secondly, we find here in the secondary parable, I'm jumping for a minute over verses 9 and 10. I'll come back. Verses 11 to 13 show us the excellence of God's gifts. Now, you might puzzle over these, but almost any decent New Testament commentary will help you by reminding you that a fish and a serpent are, can be at least superficially similar in their appearance. If you had a lizard or a snake and you compared that to a perhaps a very delightful fish to eat. You wouldn't want to eat the lizard. You certainly wouldn't desire to eat the snake. But you might make a confusion 
at a first glance of these two, that they're a little bit similar. What, what about the egg and the scorpion, people ask? I think that's well resolved by a comment by many New Testament commentators, that there's a scorpion in the, in the Middle East that was very common, especially in those older times, that would curl itself up so that it only had a, a shell, an oval shell that was usually white or light brown in color. Well, imagine that. You can think of something kind of oval in shape, tan or white. First glance, looks kind of like an egg. Looks like an Amish brown egg. You know, I've learned about brown eggs. Do you know what they are? Some of you know. Some of you lived in Lancaster County a long time. Why at the end of the driveway does it say brown eggs? Not eggs, eggs. And uh, they're supposed to be better. Well, the Amish brown eggs look like a curled up scorpion. First glance, the egg isn't going to bite you, but the scorpion might be deadly. The point is, God isn't going to give you a gift that is going to harm you. Even if at first glance you might look at it and say, oh, that isn't what I asked for. That isn't what I sought or what I needed. You know, we all need to learn in the conversation with God that in many cases, there's a disconnect between what we ask for and what we get. And that can be due to a lot of things. It can be due to the ignorance of our request. We don't even know what we need best. God does. And we ask for things we think, well, this would be perfectly good. I'm sure there couldn't be any harm if God gave me this, but he chooses not to give us that. He gives us something else that's mildly threatening, or we say, hmm, that wasn't what I wanted. It looks like God doesn't answer prayer. Jesus said in John 15, ask whatever you will in my name, and you will have it. Aren't we always learning, discovering, striving to find out what it means to ask in his name? To ask for what Jesus himself would ask for? To ask for that which is according to the mind and character of God, not necessarily according to our sinful character. What we're doing, and why there are several verbs here, I think, asking, seeking, knocking, is a process of a relationship. We start out with a certain idea. Here's what I need, O Lord. But maybe this isn't right. And we need to say, Lord, maybe my request, good as it sounds, just isn't what you intend to do. Will you help me, teach me to see and understand what you want in this situation? Show me if I need to expect something quite different and be ready to receive what you do as your will. It makes me think of, if you've ever done very much writing in an academic setting, you all certainly went through eighth grade or something where you were asked to write a short story or a composition. And uh, if you had a wise teacher, they, they worked you through several drafts. You had a first draft of the composition and it was pretty rough. And maybe the teacher you know, checked that and made red marks on it and said, do this, do this, change this word. And then you came back with your second draft, and they worked through that with you and, and said, do this, do this, change this word. And finally, you had a better draft. If you don't know this, if you aspire to be a writer, all true writing is rewriting. That's what it's all about, folks. Rewrite enough times, and you'll actually be an intelligible writer. Well, that's what we're doing in prayer. We're rewriting prayer. We're having God, the Holy Spirit, edit our prayers and show us that wasn't the wisest thing you could have asked for. This is more in accord with the will of God. Or 
Didn't you see that happening in your life the other day? That was the Lord. And it means we have to sometimes say goodbye to things that are cherished, that we think this would be the answer. No, it isn't the answer. God has better things in mind many times. And so we have this, which of you fathers, if your son asked for a fish, would give him a, a serpent or a, a serpent? If he asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? The point is, you may not recognize the goodness in God's gifts because they look a little different than what you asked for in the first place. But you should not come to the Lord with impudence and say, God, didn't you understand what I was asking for? When are you going to deliver? Meaning what I said. And if that's your attitude, let me tell you, you're not going to advance very well in the school of prayer. James 4 18 has that apostle saying that we don't see many of our petitions granted exactly as ordered because, James said, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives to spend it on your pleasures. You want things that are pleasing, that are soft, that are easy, that are comforting. Sometimes God wants to give you things that are stiff and a little thorny and a bit challenging because he will grow you with those things. James, the same book, 117, says every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Your Father knows what you need, Jesus is saying. Listen to him. Be willing to adapt to the way he works in your life as you pray. And ask him a prayer that really cannot be denied. Father, give me what is your best. Give me your will. I want your will. I seek it, whatever it is. Teach me to recognize it and bow before it. That prayer has to be answered. Well, thirdly, there is this how much more principle that comes all through this passage. Verses 9 and 10, assure it, Reluctant householder, barely is cordial, but he does it because he knows it's necessary. God does it because he loves you, and he cannot rush out fast enough to embrace you. And then that verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more? I love those words when they occur in the Scripture. How much more? That occurs a lot of times. God is not making a direct comparison. He's saying, here's something good. Think how much better your heavenly Father is. He will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Somebody might say, well, who said I was asking for the Holy Spirit? I I was asking for a new job. I was asking for my sister to be saved. I wasn't asking for the Holy Spirit, but don't you see If he gives us his spirit, he gives us everything he has. He gives us the communication of himself. He gives us, in a sense, the real presence of Christ in our lives by the Holy Spirit. This is the universal gift. One size really does fit all when you've been given the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 3 says God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond everything you ask or think. Perhaps you don't think that's true because you're sitting around waiting for him to mechanically put prayer gifts under your Christmas tree that exactly match everything on your wish list. 
You need to beg not for the dry crumbs of your own requests, but of the loaves, the fragrant loaves of God's fulfillment and bringing you things that are better than you could ever think. You must give up a marketing definition of prayer, and all of us have it to some extent. I put the coins in the machine. The answer is supposed to come out. I sent the order off to Amazon.com, and the order should be there in 48 hours at my front door. That is not the way prayer works. Almost never. We are being drawn into a relationship with the living God to whom we speak. And if we listen carefully, he speaks back. He nudges us. He speaks through his word and through his spirit. And he says, your thinking is wrong. Get it adjusted. And the more time you spend in his presence, the more he molds and shapes that thinking of yours to get closer and closer to his wonderful will. You must approach him believing that he will respond, that he is benevolent, that he does love you, and that he has better things to do for you than you know how to provide for yourself. Some of you just don't believe that, I think. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door of that living relationship will be open to you. Our Father, we pray that you help us to keep on discovering prayer. Forgive us for the way we have treated it mechanically. Just thinking that we pull a lever and something is supposed to pop out at us. We want a relationship with you, Father. A living, loving relationship with you who know us as well as we know ourselves. In fact, far better. You know what's best for us. So keep teaching us, changing us, molding us as we seek and knock and show us your perfect ways, we ask. For Jesus' sake, amen.